The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views. I'm coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. So last week, I sat down with Oliver Baita, the chief executive of Allianz, as part of our series of live events celebrating the world emerges, our 2021 book of predictions. Now, as anyone who knows Oliver can attest, he's never shy with his views. I'm not going to give them all away here, but let's just say he's got a strong sense that financial markets right now are poised for disappointment. He also believes policymakers and central bankers need to do a better job of thinking about the impact all their fiscal and monetary stimulus will have on economies and markets and how, if ever, they're going to be able to reverse course without causing major disruption. Now, despite all these risks, Oliver sounded pretty optimistic about the $100 billion insurer's position in the marketplace, its digital capabilities, and its position as a potential consolidator in the insurance business. Give it a listen. Uh, hello, Oliver, how are you? I'm very good, thank you, Rob. So Oliver is a former McKinsey executive who joined Allianz in 2008 and has been the chief executive now since 2015. It's great to have you on. Now, let me just start as an expert or a, uh, someone who thinks about the risks lurking around the corner. Let's start with the big picture. Um, what's your assessment of where we are, let's say, in, in this cycle of the pandemic, both the, you know, sort of the economic cycle? Are you optimistic? about where we're going? Do you think we're headed for another jolt backwards? What's your sense of where we are? Uh, thank you for the question, Rob, and thank you for inviting me. It's a true pleasure and honor to be with you today. Um, to your question, um, you have to be an optimist if you operate in our industry, given sort of the pressures we've seen over the last decade already. But in terms of the COVID dynamics, on the, it very much depends on the psychology of investors and not just in the markets, but real world investors, I call them IE entrepreneurs and our consumers, whether they're actually going to go back into uh, spending. As you know, that uh, savings rates have more than doubled in Europe, they're north of 20% in Germany. So the key question is, uh, will we have more investment and more consumption coming or not? And that is heavily depending, again, on psychological factors. And one of the key things we believe will make a difference is whether we will see um, better progress on the vaccination front. There's lots of uncertainty around how that's going to work and whether it's going to work. We need about 20, depending on what country you're in, 20 to 40 percent of the population to be vaccinated to have uh, the effect that we're looking for. And it will really very much depend on whether we get that done in the first half of this year, whether we are going to see a sort of resurrection of economic activity in this uh, uh, Q3 and Q4 of this year. That's what we believe. So again, vaccine economics are about confidence, if I may say so. And at the moment, it's a mixed picture. You know, you have some countries that are making enormous progress and others that uh, look pretty messy, including our own one here. Yeah, no, that is, I mean, there is a sort of sense that if you get, if you work way through the oldest part of the society, you know, the, the, the most vulnerable, and you do, will start to see that manifested in much, you know, declining death rates, which seem to be the, the, the flashing red for most of us, and, and reduced hospital uh, utilization, all of that. Um, but I mean, are you, so do you think the markets, let's just kind of think about financial yeah. markets, which of course are reaching, you know, as ever, sort of new highs, um, do you think that they are just completely discounting 
the possibility that we will will not get to that those points where the 20 to 40 percent or that the, there's absolutely no sense that there's a risk almost it seems yeah so I, first of all, I make a discount. I'm not the world's greatest investor, and I don't pretend to be one. Uh, as, a, as an economist, um, and looking at pricing and any kind of historical yardstick, as you have mentioned, we have very, very lofty valuations, to put it mildly. And um, they are providing very little cushion against an unexpected set of bad news. So they're all pricing for the best possible outcome, which in reverse means if something goes wrong, uh, premature withdrawal of fiscal or monetary stimulus and that they're asking for uh, ever more. And I think that's a real problem. We're going, I think we need to talk about that because it's like, you know, you're on cocaine. Uh, I hear from people that are expert in this, they said you can never get off it. Uh, maybe that's a problem. Then if you think about uh, social unrest, you know, what happened in the US and over the last few weeks, uh, and people are very happy, virus mut uh, mutations. So going back to the medical side, that actually create increase in death rates massively, not just spreading the virus faster, but getting death rates up, particularly in younger populations. So people get really scared across the board. Just to name a few, we would have um, significant opportunity, so to speak, for a substantial correction. Yeah, I mean, that, that's worrisome. I mean, you talked about the fiscal stimulus. Let's, let's actually go to that. I mean, President Biden, and I'm gonna ask you about the US as well, but. You know, President Biden's put forward a 1.9 trillion plan. Uh, you know, central banks keep pumping the money in. Uh, what I mean, how do how? It almost feels like they'll, they'll. To your point about cocaine addiction, again, I am also not an expert on this, um, but um, but I just wonder what, what? How do we get out of this cycle? How do we ever pull the punch bowl away or the mirror covered with coke or whatever that the analogy would be? This conversation, uh, Rob, is actually ahead of the game because nobody's asking the question or dares to ask the question because then you have to deal with the consequences. At the moment, you know, the central banks are saying we are without alternative. We have to put the money, pump the money in. We have to do that in order to have, avoid a collapse. You know, we had that, remember, in 2002 and three. then we came out of it. We had that in 89 and we didn't come out of it. When you look at debt levels today relative to 2008 and nine, they haven't come down. They have been going up. And by the way, despite sort of uh, write downs of a billion on Greece, 100 billion on Greece and others. So debt levels have been increasing ever since for various reasons. And now we're adding on top. So the question I have is, unfortunately, I don't have the answer yet, but we need to answer the question, not just ask the question. We can talk about that, but it's not on the agenda of anybody at the moment, maybe on our children's agenda, but they, if they understood it, you know, they, my children understand climate change and they're getting really upset. I hope they're getting upset about, you know, indebted thing, our future generations as we do that now. And then we say, oh, it's without alternative. You know, when we talk to the magnet positive says without alternative, what would I do? Would I let the, the, the economy die? Of course not. But you could also ask the question, do we need then on top to have all these money transfers that are not needed? You know, all the subsidies for agriculture and all the things we have known for many years that don't make any sense. So the question is a very important one to ask and there's very few answers today. I mean, one will, will in, in theory, if, if some people's views about the economy are correct, and uh, you know, we, we, we see a sort of real euphoric bounce, should, we actually, should everything go right, as markets seem to be um, uh, pricing in, we, with all this money sloshing around out there, and all this pent-up demand, I don't know about you, but I, 
I can't wait to go out and have a little revenge spending at a somewhere in a bar, a music festival, anything. Um, although I'm probably too old for the latter. But the uh, you know I just wonder if uh, you don't what we're really going to see is a giant inflation bump that sort of then scares policymakers in some way. I mean now at the moment you talk to a central bank governor almost anywhere they like they kind of they don't seem very fussed about the possibility of going a bit above their inflation targets right because they've always been pretty much below them for so long. Yeah, is that is that think... the thing that's the the catalyst for the great shift? It's a very good question. There's, that is the question, Rob, is are we actually going to create inflation really for the first time? Now, remember, that is what people wanted to do after the financial crisis that said we are doing quantitative easing in order to stimu uh, stimulate investment in the real economy through the banking system by making you know, lending really cheap. Now, what has happened? Nothing has happened. No. The lending hasn't happened. The investment hasn't happened. And the only thing that happened, it suppressed you know, interest rates on debt. So the governments went on spending and uh, reallocation of money and the debt levels increased, but not the investment to the same degree. So if history is any prediction of the future, I'm not saying that it is, it's very little chance that we get that. We end up more like Japan with ever higher debt levels. No, the only difference is in Japan, all the debt is owned by their citizens. In our nice little European system, we are now really moving the debt from the South to the North. Right, and the, the Japanese seem willing to be financially repressed for the most part. Um, I'm not sure that that would last long in, in Europe or certainly in the United States. Yeah, so we need to go through the question. We need to ask it whenever we have the attention. I think everybody's busy now with vexation. It is clear we will have a massive rebound short term, but whether that is going to be sufficient to overcome the structural deficits, underinvestment in technology, underinvestment in uh, infrastructure of any kind, underinvestment in education, underinvestment in the energy transition into what we need to do, uh, insufficient investment, for example, in hydrogen that needs to come. That is very important. The other question I have is always very interesting. So if we are uh, opting, by the way, the question is who actually as an electorate authorized that we are now basically having uh, to bail out at European level individual countries. I thought that was actually prohibited, but let's assume that we found a way to legitimize that. Does that mean that we're gonna have less debt on the national level and at the state level? Normally logic would suggest, you know, you have more debt in Europe than you would should have less debt anywhere else. I haven't heard anybody saying that. It's like, you know, you can add another layer of debt and it magically one day is gonna go away. So the question again, you know, uh, when and how is that going to be addressed uh, is going to be an essential one, uh, particularly for our children. Yeah, you mentioned that. And we, well, you mentioned climate change, of course, which is the longer term existential threat. But let's talk about the fiscal threat. I mean, it's sort of a question of how you, we, it's hard to say that it wasn't right to put money into the economy, to, to bail out, you know, or, or to protect businesses that were, for no fault of their own, were hit by lockdowns, for instance, which were a policy decision. Um, and the pandemic just generally, obviously. But I, how do we pay for it? I mean, how do, or how do our kids pay for it? I think we both have kids around the same age, Oliver. Um, what, what, uh, they're not asking me that question. I don't know if they're asking you that, but um, should they ask, what do we tell them? Um, unfortunately, again, if history is a good forecast for the future somewhat, it doesn't happen without debt restructuring and write downs. And then the question, who will pay for that? 
Yeah, and you know, if, if people think they can do it through increased taxation, we have that debate. You know, we're already at the highest level of taxation that we've ever seen in our country. You know, when you make as a household 110,000 euros, you're already considered to be rich. That means you're in the highest tax bracket. We have north of 20% VAT. You know, the, the, the issue is you, you can tax the cow to death. At some point, it stops giving milk, right? So increasing taxes redistribution is not it. The answer has to be we need really we need real innovation and productivity increases because population growth as the other driver uh, has to be very carefully managed as we know you know um, and so therefore th there are economic answers the question is do we have the political will and with a very strongly aging population ro uh, rob you know and um, you know my, my father's 85 he may say you know is enough money for me left you worry about it <laughs> Right. But when you say the political, so maybe go back a little. So write downs and restructuring. Now, as I'm imagining Allianz, which has a, you know, trillions of dollars of investments, um, including in, in lots of these sovereign bonds and things like that, that's, that's not what you're looking for. That would not nope. be a great, you don't want to nope. give a 20% haircut. Yeah, but to your original question, by the way, we had a haircut, uh, unfortunately, uh, in 2011 on Greek government debt, when, by the way, the, no public investor ever lost any money. It was the private sector that uh, had to um, provide 100 billion and we were part of it. And um, the key point is it can't happen again. So we have to have a risk management policy to protect our policyholders. We need to protect our savers. That's actually our job to navigate these waters as uh, well as we can. So really, really having uh, risk management policies that, by the way, uh, are also inconsistent with regulation. And I don't know whether you know that, but if, if you invest in a triple B country in government debt in Europe under regulation, both as a bank and insurer, that's considered to be a risk-free investment. So whether you are in a triple A country like Germany or a triple B or non-investment grade country, you know, it's considered to be risk-free. And we have always talked after 2008 and nine about the so-called doom loop, right? So that the banks invest in national government debt that hasn't been addressed. And I think it's about time that the public notices that, that, you know, the financial system has been improved massively, but it's still fragile in many ways. So our job is actually to protect our policyholders against these, you know, predictable risks as, as much as we can. I, I mean, you talk about the political will to do the things I think you mentioned, uh, investment in technology, education, the energy transition, infrastructure. Now, of course, Going back a little bit to this idea of this Hamiltonian moment for Europe, this uh, the European reco the recovery fund, which was essentially mutualized debt, which will then be get handed out to various countries. I think Italy gets the largest chunk. Um, that is, of course, designed to fill to I think in many cases to 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 kind of get up to speed on some of those issues, to fill in the gaps on infrastructure, technology, education. Are you not confident that this will work? So th that's a good question. So again, being an optimist, I sincerely hope that it works. And by the way, we have had restructurings in Europe, so just to be, be go to the optimistic side, programs that have worked. Think about Cyprus, everywhere the ESM, by the way, we're the biggest private investor in the ESM. We really believe it's a fantastic structure, very, very well managed. The programs have worked. But one thing that is very important, uh, uh, sort of implicit in your question, is that you have to have the money going to investment. 
into really addressing the competitive gaps, into addressing education and not redistribution and not into consumption. By the way, we have enough private money for consumption. It's there. It needs to be mobilized, but it will come if people have confidence in the future. So the job that politicians really need to take serious is to make the right decisions so that our people have confidence in the future again, and not just into the economic, but the societal future. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the things you and I talked about early, uh, last year um, when I visited you in Munich was just sort of lessons. This is a sort of broader question, but lessons that, that societies, well, let's say liberal, Western liberal democratic societies um, can learn from or, or takeaways that they should have from this, uh, the pandemic um, and, and com compare and contrast that with other countries that are, you know, have, I mean, everyone points to China where we, from which the disease emanated. And yet China, I think had 2% GDP growth last year. Uh, the fourth quarter was back to six something percent. Um, if you look at companies like in your, in your neck of the woods, BMW, others, they're all the only bright spot in their, in their, around the world is basically selling in China. Um, but what, just stepping back, what, and this, I think maybe you're, you, you pointed at some of these issues, these gaps, investment gaps, but what, what, are we, what should we learn, whether it's Germany, France, Italy, UK, Australia, the US, from, 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 from the rest of the world and, and from their response to the pandemic? Yeah, so let's, for, again, start positive. And, and, and also in our company, things that I've seen that I've never th thought were possible. 90% of our people, Rob, work from home highly effectively. And would I have thought two years ago that we would have been able to make the technology transition that we've made as a company. And by the way, many companies in Europe have made through sort of dedication, a burst of ingenuity, you know, being really creative, agility. I mean, people have adapted super fast to working from home despite a lot of stress. So I first, I think that's really great. And on the other thing is also solidarity. You saw in many societies in Europe, if you have the proper leadership, people do not just follow, but they actively contribute. You know, we value now the people in the hospitals that work for us, the people that work in public transportation. You know, we finally get, they get the recognition they always deserved. So I think that's extremely positive. At the same time, we have also seen the fragility of federal and multi-layered bureaucracy, right? Europe, federal, state, city, and parts of city, and they were very ill-prepared. Now, how can you prepare for something like a meteoroid strike, uh, as uh, last year I tried to call it? It's very difficult to do. We never really believe it will ever happen, and once it happened, we, really not, we don't do the fire drills for it. So we also have to give credit to the organizations that they couldn't be prepared. Now, the issue is uh, that in a crisis, and I have to say as a former uh, person that was in the military, you know you need, unfortunately, to change structures. In a real crisis, you cannot have bottom-up decision-making, particularly if you have to act fast. And we've done a lot of very good things. So think about Germany last year in March, April, May. You know, the response was swift. It was consequential. It was highly effective. And then after the summer, the discipline disappeared. And that's the, that's the issue in difference to a central uh, command and control structure like you have that in China. In crisis, it's much more effective. And it's not to do whether it's democratic or undemocratic. I saw all of that theory. No, no, no. It's about how, who manages the system and how do you prioritize. So the discussion we have in Western society always is about individual freedom 
and collective safety. And I know it's a very difficult thing to trade, but at the end of the day, one has to make a trade of decision. The key thing is making a decision. And often the worst thing is not making decisions or reversing decisions every three days. And that is, I think personally uh, creating the chaos and not you know, bad intentions or uh, things like that. So I think one of the lessons learned is we need a little bit like an emergency organizational structure that said, how do we make decisions uh, under stress? And we, we are sort of lucky, let me say that uh, politely, imagine that that virus would have been a little more deadly yeah, for the average person. You know, our society would be, look, be looking very different with the ineffective responses that we've had. Yeah, so if this was anything like the 1918 influenza, which really targeted all, all levels, yeah. not just the, the old and the infirm, it would be quite different. But so, so an emergency organizational structure, I mean, is any, okay, we talked about China, but is anybody, I'm just trying to think of anyone in the West who's legitimately can say, ah, we handled this, we think the right way or better, or we might be, or that someone might point to as a model, because I, I, str I struggle with that. I mean, Germany, as you said, did very well in the beginning. Here in Switzerland, did very well in the beginning. But right now, no one would ever say that about uh, Switzerland. And Germany has now gone into, you know, quite a stringent uh, lockdown. Um, UK is a mess. I'm just trying, you know, the US forget about it, as they say yeah. in New York. Yeah, no, it's only those that really have been able to isolate them. Think about Australia and New Zealand, yeah. where you can physically do that. You can close the borders. In Germany, we cannot close the borders, right? So it's theoretically possible. But then the way to think about it, how people, the Chinese do it, is a very fundamental question about personal privacy and privacy. You know, I was, had to travel once in, in the COVID time. And in, uh, I went to a country that was very stringent on the way in and very stringent on the way back. When I landed in Frankfurt, nobody was checking where the heck I was coming from and what I was carrying. And then you can't be surprised that people that continuously come from all over the world go unchecked, nobody checks the testing, nobody checks the data, nobody traces anything that you end up in a mess. Now you yeah. can say, well, it's unrealistic to expect that. Okay, but then let's tell the public we're out of control. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I think that is true. I mean, I've done two quarantines here coming back from the States. Yeah, you know, I spent 10 days here, but no one knocked on my door. I'm not asking that they do, but um, it didn't strike me as it was as, as uh, stringent as I thought. Um, let me ask you just uh, just in general, how, so we talked a little bit about how, you know, the bigger picture, well, how about for Allianz? I mean, how has the pandemic changed your, your store? What is it doing to your strategy? How, what things around, how are you doing business differently? Yeah. I think that the, the, the first learning, and again, that is not very unique in terms of insight, is that the COVID and the pandemic are accelerating the trends that we've already seen, particularly around digitalization. And uh, a lot of innovation is coming in. Let's be positive about it. You know, Think about all the technical innovation that we have seen and really working. And I think that's really great. And it should be preserved, by the way, for the future. It shouldn't go away. And we'll have that. And I think there is also a new social contract. So the time I also personally spent with our people last year to make sure that they're safe at home. I hadn't really thought enough about it in the past. You know, what is the psychological situation if you have to be working from home with the children in the living room, you know, not just about cybersecurity worries, but really yeah. how do you feel? Yeah, being locked up for months after months and months. So that there is a totally different connection to our people. And you say, how can you say that? We have had, uh, Rob, talking about 2020 being a huge success, the highest level of customer satisfaction, the highest 
level of e employee motivation in Allianz in our 131 history. And at least for the last 25 years, we've measured it scientifically. And um, because that people felt they have a company that is taking care of them and our clients, we've invested so enormously in informing them around what's going on around COVID. So there's a lot of criticism around, we, you know, we didn't pay business interruption claims, all of that in the press, sorry, totally are blown out of proportion. Now, the stuff we've done on healthcare, on the life side, in terms of helping people, uh, it is much more important than that. And again, we have the evidence to prove it. We measure that through what we call, uh, the industry calls the net promoter score, i.e. the willingness of our clients to recommend our services and products to their families and friends. And that reached an all-time high. Just to give you a number, in 60% of our businesses globally, across 70 plus countries, we are now the loyalty leader. I have the highest customer satisfaction in our industry, 60. And in 76%, we are above market average. And we started below 50 just five years ago. So if you think about the massive movement in these numbers, they show if you invest in the health of the company, not just in the financials, success will come. That's the first learning. And the pandemic is actually accelerating that trend. So looking, uh, financials are an outcome of outperformance at the customer interface. And that, and uh, by the way, digital companies are teaching that to us. The second one, and I think that's very important, and you see that also in the new Edelman report on sort of trust parameters for that just came out in 2021, is that we have obligations far beyond making money or serving our clients and our employees, but also certain things that matter to society. As you know, Allianz is one of the leaders in terms of climate change investment and we helped uh, the UN, with the UN to create the Asset Owner Alliance, now north of 5.1 trillion US dollars, to really move money out of uh, non-sustainable business models. And that is something that we don't do as a hobby, because, uh, but we, we are expected to drive and help. Not on everything, but where people feel that we can make a difference. And last but not least, we also have massive changes. Now let's get to the challenges. The key one is obviously uh, the manipulated uh, inter government interest rates, because of the regulation that we have in many countries, particularly Europe, we are forced to invest in fixed income instruments with a coupon to hedge interest rate risks. And if you're forced to invest in government debt, by the way, called risk-free, whether that is in Germany or elsewhere, then you end up with a problem, right? So be because how can you serve guarantees uh, if you're basically getting no return. If you buy a 10-year yeah. bond at 104 euros and somebody asks you to guarantee 100%, even though you get 100 back after 10 years, the business model doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work anymore. So we need to create totally different products, focus a lot more on protection rather than guarantees of returns. Think about creative ways in a negative interest rate environment to offer proper risk-adjusted returns to our clients. That is very, very challenging. Yeah, well, let's cover the digitalization one just quickly. I mean, you you, you mentioned that as the, the, we, we've accelerated that trend. Um, that what what does that mean? Function the fact that you do well in your in your net promoter score is that because you made the appropriate investments in some of these things like digital technologies ahead of time? What it like what it, and, and how do you keep that going if everybody else is going to just try to keep you know do the same thing? So the first thing is, and as stupid as it may sound, you can't manage anything that you don't measure. So the first question we spend a lot of time on, you know, how do we think about that? And is that really important? So let me give you, when we started many years ago, my predecessor, Michael, already started on it. The point was, well, when you have a claim and you have to deny a claim, then somebody will be unhappy. 
So what, does that mean now I have to pay a claim that is not warranted? No, the answer obviously is not. But ideally, Rob, you do not have a client calling you that is disappointed about the claim that you don't pay. People should know what you cover and what you don't cover. It sounds pretty stupid, but it's a big problem in our industry because our products are so complicated that people often actually, particularly in commercial insurance, and you saw that in the pandemic, have no idea what is actually covered first. So products have to become a lot more simple, but let me use a different word, but more intuitive. Okay, and it should be clear, by the way, that pandemics cannot be insured, yeah? particularly if government can unilaterally decide to close you down. But anyway, the second one, so intuitive simplicity is one. The other one is actually, do we know how well we do at the customer interface for each and every transaction? This industry used to measure things on an 80-20 basis. Oh, 80% of the time, people are very happy. Well, you know, people in some platforms, Netflix, Amazon, others, they are 99.999% happy. Is 80-20 a good thing? No. So for example, we had companies that had 80% of the claims that got five-star rating. They said, we are the greatest in the world. Well, 10%, every 10th client gave them a one-star. And that is lousy. So not having detractors, i.e. people that are unhappy, is the first priority then. So that's how we work on it. And we go through every process, every product. And by the way, we're not done. Yeah, I think we're actually getting started. And the second one is actually, how do you communicate, right? When I used to call even our company 10 years ago, sometimes it happened that said, hello. And somebody says, hello, what is your policy number? And it was not, how are you, Rob? <laughs> uh, and may right. I help you, right? So that's history. Now it's much, much better. And we have outstanding people, but you need to make it a priority, as stupid as it may sound. If you have a productivity mindset that says, you need to do 50 phone calls an hour, then there's very little time to be nice. So we've totally changed that. Yes, productivity is important, but productivity comes from people not complaining, not getting lots of calls of people that don't understand what you do. So again, it's uh, a lot of things that in other industries uh, has happened a long time ago, but simplification in intuitive products and services and having a lot more empathy with the people that do and being clear about what you do. And by the way, what about what you don't do? Sure, sure. But of course, then as you mentioned, the other risk or challenge is interest rates. So if interest rates are negative or zero um, and you're having to make guarantees or make, uh, yeah, effectively, I mean, how, doesn't that make things like the life insurance business somewhat toxic? I mean, what, what should you be getting out of life? Should you just, or, or what, is it, what, what does it actually mean for that? You mentioned new products. What does it actually mean for the product, the sort of product set that you have today, which? Yeah, I, I think is, um... Life insurance is not a toxic business as your question would, would suggest. <laughs> uh, but let's differentiate two things. One, the, the new products that we have on advice and sale today. And the other ones, the policies that we've been writing you know, until about 10 years ago when we changed the view on interest rate and said Japan is the base scenario that we did in 2011. And let's work from there with much more effective products. Since then, we've massively changed in our industry, but Allianz in particular, risk capital consumption and guarantee levels in a way that are much more efficient in terms of capital consumption. So going forward, we actually believe we have excellent products for our consumers, whether they be through retail channels or through workplace and companies. Uh, so they are there. And by the way, there's a lot more focus on protection and health and the pandemic will heighten that. The, the real challenge is for the industry when people have been writing policies 20 years ago when interest rates were five or six percent risk-free so to speak triple a rates and now with with financial repression 
how do you service these policies? That is the real issue. And it is like a debt restructuring. It has to be addressed. Now, in our case, uh, we have thought about it very early and did a lot of things to really alleviate the pressure. So we feel very comfortable that we know what to do with these books. What can I ask you just beyond interest rates and some of these other words? I mean, let's talk about climate. We've talked about it a bit, but uh, and you guys are, are very, have been sort of leaders and I think it's the Asset Owner Alliance. But yeah, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about that. But, you know, how do you see it as, as a sort of the when you look out at the risk curve, say 10, 20, 30 years from now, what and you're writing policies today that may address some of these questions down the road. But, how, you know, how concerned are you that you're, or how confident are you that we're pricing that, that Allianz or anyone in the insurance business is pricing that risk appropriately today? Yeah, it's very difficult to answer because we don't know. Uh, but I've seen for the first time real momentum. So, we, for example, very happy that with the change in the White House, one of the first thing President Biden did is go back to the protocols and being part of the uh, the COP. Uh, that's really great because we need the United States. Remember, Japan just committed to net zero with a new prime minister, unthinkable two years ago. China has committed to it, even though they gave it to 2060. So I think the movement is irreversible. Now we have to put the action plans into place. What is the specific yeah. things that are going to happen for particularly energy and CO2 emissions to, to be changed? And we know what the sources are. By the way, we have a pretty good idea on what has to happen on the various levers. Now it's about the practicalities of implementing plans for that to happen. And I, I am personally very, very confident that we have now enough momentum to address it. And I think that will be irreversible. Now, again, it's about determination. And my initial worry, by the way, personal worry when COVID really went uh, uh, really gangbusters that people would drop that as a priority, it hasn't happened. It's, it's really yeah. good that it hasn't happened. And again, the next generation is reminding us that it's important. And it's also good business. A lot of the innovative, for example, power sources, hydrogen offer significant innovation returns. So it's not that it's just about, you know, doing nice things. There's also economic opportunity in the, in the energy transition if the incentives are properly set. Yeah, but it's funny you mentioned, you know, countries are, are committing to net zero, all that kind of stuff. Companies too. I mean, every day there's a new, um, but, but it's often easy, let's say, uh, for a CEO, sitting CEO today to commit his credit, his successors <laughs> to have to do something five, 10, 15 years from now, I guess sort of, what have you, what have you done at Allianz and what that, that is sort of more than just you passing on, not that you're leaving or going anywhere. Yeah. I know, but um, yeah. you know, what is it that you're doing that's, that actually, you know, sort of measurable points, yes. action points. Yeah, we've just published our, for the first plan for 2025, a couple of days ago, on how we are going to so decarbonize our investment portfolio. Uh, and very happy to follow up and show you what we do together with the other members of the Asset Owner Alliance. What are the steps that we're doing to sort of change asset allocation, uh, to invest in new classes, help to develop carbon sinks, you know, creating all these things. So we have very specific plans, not just in you know, having greener buildings and having electric fields. By the way, we need to again, go to hydrogen I think battery technology, as we know it today, is going to just be an intermediate step uh, because it's not really, really efficient and it cannot be scaled long term, but it will be an intermediate step. So we have a very, very clear plan for Allianz and, and I'm very happy to show. We also have um, an ESG department reporting to a board member who are full time working on this issue. And we have also, by the way, on our supervisory board, 
one of the few companies that actually have an ESG committee coming uh, that will focus on really measuring the impact. So these things are hardwired in our targets and not just for 2050, but also for my plan and every board member in Alliance, every executive does have that as part of his targets. It's not a nice to have. It's a core part of how we incentivize people. And I think that's the right way to go. All right. Um, You've mentioned Joe Biden. Well, yesterday was kind of a, a biggish day, um, at least. It does seem that we've turned the temp. He's taken the temperature down, which I think was the best that one could hope, um, and it's quite a significant improvement. But what are your views about? I mean, wh what are your hopes in terms of you know from the business environment? What is what is a calmer U.S. a, 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 a U.S. that's a little bit more, let's say, you can uh, more dependable on multilateral in, international organizations. Um, what, what are your thoughts there? And then sort of separately, that is, where does the US-China Cold War yep. go from here and how does that affect it? Yeah, so um, long before COVID arose and the, the relationship between the US and China has changed from cooperation to rivalry because the Americans have come to the conclusion like many parts of the world that the assumption that with ever increasing wealth in China, they would start to become as a society much more like we are uh, has not happened, right? Everybody thought, you know, eventually they will do the same as we do and it doesn't happen. By the way, that's without any judgment. I think it's a huge success uh, what, uh, in the eyes of the Chinese, how successful the chi China has become, not just in economic terms. And by the way, we'll get probably to that later as a citizen, you know, I have a lot of Chinese friends who say, you know what? We are much more successful than you are. Do you feel more safe to walk the streets of New York at night or the streets of Shanghai? Do you think you have more equal access to education in Atlanta or in Beijing? Do you think you're getting better equal treatment in hospitals in uh, San Francisco or in Shenyang? And that's really an interesting thing if you think about the answer. If, if, if citizens don't think about the principles, like how do we think about democracy and does everybody have the right? But if people come from outcomes and say, you know, are the opportunities for our children going up or down? What is the better system? Then you get to really interesting discussions. At least I have that with my Chinese friends. So first observation, which I personally found very interesting over the holidays. The second one, if that is not going to go away, then the question is how does America deal with Europe? Because we've also seen that over the last few, few years, they basically came to the point that said, you're either our friend or you're their friend, but both is not possible. And the answer from Europe certainly has been we don't want to make that choice and we don't have to make that choice. You know, Europe together is still the largest economic zone that exists and we, we will have our own policies and we have to have our own policy. That doesn't mean that we're not in strong uh, allegiance with the United States, but it has to be eye to eye, not like, you know, uh, we, we can be whipped around. It doesn't mean that America needs to like everything that happens in Europe. Yeah, I have lots of things I would criticize also the way we don't fund, fund for our defense, for example, and other items. Uh, but I think there has to be a real partnership and eye to eye. And I hope that the administration in Washington recognizes that. But I don't think it's going to be easy, particularly no, on trade policy. I don't think that the Biden administration is going to be so different from what I see now, from what has happened before. And we need to be worried about that. Well, you, you, you pointed out that Europe is going its own way in many respects. They just, the European Union just signed a an uh, investment treaty with, with China, which has created some questions about why do that. You're working on it for seven years. You could wait two more months and then join up a bit with 
the with the United States. But I mean, there is that question of at least coming together on certain important core issues and having a, a more leveraged conversation. It certainly makes sense. What can I ask you just about? Let's go. Let's get a little geeky on insurance and your business. So. Um, you know, you look at the shares of most of the European uh, insurance companies, and they haven't really, including Allianz, they haven't really recovered to their pre-pandemic levels. What's your sense? What's what's holding them back? What's what would encourage investors to get back on board? What 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 is it about the sector that 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 mm-hmm. uh, that they that need that you guys need to kind of clarify? I think the the, the point, and and you compare that, for example, to sort of violent markets like in China. The, the answer is very simple. What is the outlook for economic growth first? You know, and given the size of Allianz and the market capitalization of the DAX, we are sort of a proxy for Germany, right? So we're always not traded only as a company, but as part of the country. The second one, clearly, Rob, is interest rate impact. Everybody knows that investment income will be significantly lower with lower rates, given that we are driven into government debt. By the way, I don't think we would need, but the regulation says that. So we need to deal with that. We need to adapt very fast. We need to massively improve productivity further. Yeah, we need to address the legacy books we have on life insurance that we talked about before. We need to change even further on innovation. So there's lots of work to be done. I'm um, pretty um, optimistic that we will um, win back and get back to our old strengths very, very soon. And And because we've been not wasting any time last year. Okay, yeah. I mean, you defied, I mean, regulators to a degree, which encourage insurers to pause dividends. Um, what's your what's your thinking now? What's on dividend payouts? Absolutely. So we have a very strong view. We have a very strong view, and that's based on two things. First, we have absolutely uh, need regulation that looks at the individual company's ability to generate capital, to protect capital, and to have cash to pay dividend. So having a sector-wide ban on non-dividend is basically nationalizing an industry. Yeah. Right? So if you're anywhere close to being a market economist, you would say that the worst thing that you can do is declare a sector in uninvestable like European banking. And you know you have outstanding banks in Europe that have massive, massive capital cushion, extremely well run, super high return. They're put into the same basket as really weak banks. And it makes no sense. Yeah? And in insurance uh, in particular, uh, somebody came up with the same idea. It makes no sense, number one. Number two, um, we have enormously stringent controls. So don't think uh, it was easy for regulator and supervisor to say, hey, yeah, go ahead, pay dividend. We had months long stress tests, debates, if the COVID gets worse, if the economy gets worse, if interest rate get to minus two, do you still have the cash flows of other dividends coming? And only if you can prove that under the most severe scenarios that we are resilient, and by the way, Munich Re the same and other companies the same, then you're allowed to pay dividends. And we have prepared very, very well. You know, we are very, very strong. I don't know whether you looked at the recent spreads or what we did on our lower tier one. You know, we basically funded equity below 4%. So, you know, we are, we are one of the few places in Europe where you have a double A rating in a financial institution. And that should be the most important thing to look at, not, uh, you know, what, what sector you operate in. That's the first point of view. The other one is also a more legal point of view. I think in this crisis, we often tend to forget that these companies, our companies owned by shareholders, and we have 700,000, Rob, private individuals that own our shares, 700,000. And if you basically deprive them of pension income because somebody sitting somewhere says, you're not going, you're going to get your dividend, 
again, uh, I'm not sure that that should be taken lightly. It's their right to the dividend as, as long as, as we can pay it. And therefore, you know, for, for these two reasons, we need to be very, very careful, really, right. really careful. So um, therefore, yeah. we are preparing and we are very confident. Now, the decision is not with us. It is uh, with our AGM, right? So we only propose through the supervisory board to the AGM. They decide the dividend and then our supervisors have to prove it. And until we have that approval, I, I don't want to sort of be too optimistic. All right. Well, how, have you proposed what your, your dividend would be? Nope. Not yet. Okay. You want to give us a preview? Yeah. Nope. Well, let me ask you about another part of this. I mean, what's your view on consolidation? Like M&A, don't ask me about M&A. <laughs> oh, come on, you know, but, but just consolidation. I mean, is, let's put it this way. Is this interest rate environment, is the pandemic, uh, the effect of the pandemic, is that more likely to create the, the sort of need for consolidation and economies of scale in your industry? And where do you see yourselves in that yeah. play? So I, I, it's not COVID, but the interesting thing, it will be the digitalization front for two reasons. Uh -huh. Number one, in the digital world, and whether we like it or not, uh, we will ha always have physical advice, particularly for complicated things. But more and more simple transactions and product will be transacted on the net. And that's a good thing because it will take massive amounts of costs out of the business system and it make products much better and much cheaper for the consumer. So it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Now, the question is, who will survive in a world that is more digital? And as we see, suddenly scale matters for a number of reasons. First, search cost. If you have a strong brand in the clutter of the internet, people search you. So you don't have to pay the platforms for customer access, which are prohibitively high, right? So when people come to us directly rather than through a search mechanism, we have much, much better economics, right? And given the when strength- When you say the platform, what are you talking about? Whether you, know, whether you go on Google and you put in cheap auto insurance, yeah. obviously you have to auction yeah, the word, you have to pay for that. Sure. Yeah, and a lot of clients don't go to Google, they go to us directly and then I we see. save the money that we have so to they pay. They put in Allianz right. car insurance rather than exactly. cheap car insurance. Yeah, what cheap car insurance. So if you have the trust of the consumer, this is why the, the connection to the earlier question was so important. If you are the loyalty leader, people have you on your mind and they say they trust you and they come and says, we are getting the best value they come to you directly. So you don't have to pay an intermediary, which is really, really important. Now, it doesn't mean you don't need them. There's many ways of they can add. So for example, our agents are outstanding in giving advice to families in complicated situations. But on very simple situation, like I want you know, a travel insurance policy or want a risk policy and I want to do it now, then people can do it themselves. So the, the search cost and the reduction in search cost drives uh, companies that have very strong brands and that have the scale. The second one is the investment power that you have in terms of investing in technology to drive that transformation. Now, people are saying, yeah, you can do it cheaply. You can have a few million, you get funded by private equity, and then you can scale. It ain't that easy because you need massive regulatory approvals. You know, our industry is very complicated. Uh, regulation is really, really intense. So if you know how to do technology, and we've partnered up, as you know, uh, with Microsoft as the, trying to develop even this as a business, our uh, IT platform, that's the second source of scale that we haven't had the last hundred years. And the third one is actually the investment side, something that we talked about. When, when returns and risk-adjusted returns um, look more and more difficult, it really matters whether you are global and you have access and you can generate investment opportunities yourself, Rob. 
So if, do you need to pay investment bankers and initiators 2% uh, initiation and, and structuring fees? Or can you generate the infrastructure and alternative assets yourself? And given our outstanding asset managers in the group, PIMCO and Allianz Global Investors, we do have the capability to do that to ourselves. A lot of smaller companies don't have that. So I believe there will be consolidation coming out of the, uh, the convergent towards digital over the next few years. And will you be a consolidator? Yes. Okay. Any particular markets of interest to you in the, around the world that we don't, that we, where quite, you quite like a few. Quite a few, we have done a few. I think the most important thing is that markets are still largely defined around customer groups and geographical boundaries because regulation is still very, very local yeah. in many ways, particularly in health and life, but also in property casualty. So local scale really matters. So over the last few years, we really scaled up where we saw an opportunity. Think about the United Kingdom. Uh, we are already the largest PNC insurer there. When you add in uh, our large corporate business, people don't count it that way. Um, we're officially the number two, but in reality, in terms of premium volume, we're already the biggest PNC company in the country. Uh, we have really uh, up the ante in Latin America and Brazil and in other places. So we're, we're specific. We just added in Australia, very difficult environment at the moment with very strong long-term potential. So we really, where we have strong businesses, we see strong long-term opportunity to build up, up uh, we, we scale up. But it, the pricing has to be right. And the issue over the last few years, Rob, has been that the markets were so buoyant that the pricing of these assets has often been prohibitive. If you really run the numbers, investors would, our investors would have not gotten a good deal if we just bought, bought, bought. All right. What about the asset management side? I mean, you mentioned PIMCO, which is, of course, a, a, um, you, you, you control, um, and it's one of the world's largest asset managers. Um, of course, it's not, it's more on the, I get, what do you call it, act, you know, it's not a passive manager in the same way that a BlackRock is, but how is, what is your sense of where it's going to happen in the, in the asset management business? And what would you, what, what, what hopes do you also, have for PIMCO? Yeah, there is also consolidation. Now the PIMCO team decides its strategic direction amongst the partnership. Uh, we are um, involved party, but they, their direction is fine. But we have just done m and it wasn't called that way. Last year, we brought a hundred billion of assets into PIMCO. It was called Allianz Real Estate a company that our colleagues uh, in, uh, developed in Europe uh, over the last decade or so with the help of external hires that made it one of the most important real estate investors actually in our industry. And the time when it, the time was right and the maturity was right, uh, we put it into PIMCO and it's going to have a fantastic future. So not everything is a purchase. It's also developing an asset, bringing it in and scaling it up as PIMCO is moving more and more into more complicated areas uh, with more stable and higher returns, more stable asset bases in, in the old space. So we're trying to help them that way also. Yeah. I mean, how do you, how, well, the other question is, you know, I know what you've been doing with your balance sheet, the Allianz balance sheet. We talked briefly about it, the Asset Owner Alliance. Um, PIMCO, of course, as you say, they decide their direction. Um, now, the direction of the Asset Owners Alliance is, is, is certainly been more, I should say, I guess the word proactive on some of the climate stuff. Well, how do you get the PIMCO aligned with that as well? Both AGI and again are driven by the mandates they get from their clients, Rob. So it is not that we actually even have the legal opportunity to tell them what to invest, we can recommend. But if a pension fund says, I would like to invest in this and that, the only thing that in the end of the day you can do is completely negate the mandate. You can basically say, I don't want to serve you anymore. 
That is an ultimate step and that has to be considered at times. The more important conversation is then to talk to them about whether it's actually good investment to be invested in industries that are not going to be surviving as we go through the energy transition. So right. the process is more slow, but it's in my personal opinion, if I may say that, um, and the, again, the colleagues uh, will decide themselves, th that transition is going to happen. It's just going to be a bit more slow than it has where we have the control and say, sorry, that's it. The policyholder money, we are going to invest like that. It, the legal situation is also very different. In the US, by the way, it's a legal offense if you do not follow the rules that are set by your investors. Okay, I'm going to ask, I got a couple of questions that have come in. Let me uh, throw them to you and sort of we'll do a little rapid fire. Um, so what is the likelihood of any significant shift in EU economic policy from the Merkel era? Do you see any change in investment, especially in coming years? How would you position differently for a CDU, CSU, Green coalition? And the sort of corollary to that is the new CDU leader, Armin Laschet, how do, how do I pronounce Laschet? that? I mean, Laschet, yeah. Yeah. Is, uh, is he is seen as the, as the Merkel continuity candidate? Is that a good thing for the German economy? So give you those. Yeah. Many, many, many questions. We will find out in September because it's at least to me not clear that uh, who's going to be the chancellor candidate that the union is going to put forward. Yeah, there's not just Mr. Laschet, there's also Mr. Söder and the sort of, as we say, the, the, the drop has not been chewed here. So we need to see who will prevail eventually and that will have a huge influence on the outcome. And the second one as implied by the question, if we have first time ever a CDU green coalition, then we need to see how that plays out uh, because it's also going to be important what economic policy the green party follows I historically have been, to be honest, a fan of them because they think about economy, what, what kind of economic system do we want? Mm. That's one thing. But what you also need is a credible policy on how to get there. You know, what is the you know, highway you're going to build to get there? And they are still extremely weak. You know, right. a lot of the theory, a lot of the things you hear is sort of from Karl Marx, 1848, um, not really well thought through with all the respect. So they have to become more pragmatic. Now, the good news is where they have been in power in the past with Joschka Fischer, uh, for example, at the end of the 90s, the most important economic reforms Germany has probably seen after the 60s have been done by Joschka Fischer and, uh, and Spearheaded and uh, Mr. Schröder. So they actually have been able, once in power, to do amazingly positive things. So um, let's get a surprise what, what's going to happen. But there's a big, big question mark around where that's going to go. I think we're going to have a shift in policy. And with all due respect, we have to have it. We have to invest a lot more in really making tough decisions about taking money from you know, consumption into investment. You cannot just, with the last few years, we've been just doling out money to special interest groups. We need to invest a lot more in innovation and infrastructure, not just talk about it. Sure. Um, another question, how challenging has it been for insurers to make early estimates of COVID's impact on the bottom line? Very difficult because the primary effect is not whether it's business interruption, it's actually what markets are gonna do. And the rebound of the markets after the second quarter have been just remarkable, just remarkable. But was that predictable? Absolutely not. So the, the issue is, you know, the, is there gonna be a market correction and uh, what will be coming as a consequence of that is the key unknown that we have to deal with. It's less and less so about business interruption, health claims, that it's, pretty much under control, but not fully yet. You know, we can still have some add-ons in the first and second quarter until we see the vaccination coming. All right. 
Another one, what is your view on the current retail investment environment, the impact of retail investors on markets? Do the retail investors need help through regulation, increased regulation? I guess it's sort of the Robin Hood day trader kind of phenomenon question. I mean, uh, I think you gave your view. You were quite skeptical of the lofty valuations of markets. Um, is this a recipe for disaster for the little guy that's now playing in them like they never have before? Good question, I, Rob, to be honest, this time I pass because I don't know the answer. I don't have the facts. So I don't know how exposed, how leveraged retail investors. I really don't. I really don't know the answer. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you about um, assets, sort of, you know, we've talked a little bit about this, you know, you're required by law to invest in certain things. But I mean, when you look out there and, and, and you've given the, the sort of political uncertainty that we see certain places, the sort of civil unrest that's bubbling up in the U.S., has your view about know, the U.S. dollar as reserve currency or the T-bill as the risk, the sort of global risk-free rate, are you, do you think we have to reassess that in some way, given what we've yes. seen in the U.S.? Absolutely. And you see that already in the weakness of the U.S. dollar, right? It's just trended down and may trend down more. But it's, on the other hand, has been remarkably resilient because what's the alternative? People are stuck. Right, that's the issue. And I think there's a big gamble going on in the central banks that people have nowhere to go, right? That we can keep on doing that. And I don't see a buyer strike coming anytime soon. The, the, the issue I see is there's lots of risk outside of the banking system that we don't see. You know, a few years ago after the financial crisis, we used to talk about uh, shadow banking. Remember that? Yeah, and that we need to get control of that. You know, the leverage hasn't decreased. You know, it has massively increased. Do we measure that? Do we manage that? I'm not so sure. I'm not a central banker. Maybe they think everything is under control. So the next crisis, the net next hit will come from other corners. And I don't know where. So the issue is uh, what we can do. Uh, and for our policy, we have to do stress testing continuously. We have to really think about, you know, what can happen and make the unbelievable so-called reverse stress testing. What has to happen for our solvency to go to a point where we don't like it? And how do we protect ourselves against that? That is what we have to do. But as a, as a, a person, I'm very worried about that. You know, we have a TV series in Germany running. It's just that deals with 1929 when there was the global crash. And when you saw taxi drivers, you know, betting on stocks up and down. Yesterday, I was sitting in a taxi where somebody was talking to another guy with how they could leverage themselves more to buy more apartments in Munich. And I thought, that sounds really, really, really strange. Yeah, no, it's as you say, history, if it doesn't repeat, it sure as heck rhymes in <laughs> these things. Um, I guess last question. So you've been at it since, 19, since 2015. Uh, this will be your sixth year then as chief executive. Uh, what's your, how long do you plan to stay? And, and you mentioned that you're not a central banker, but it sounds like you could be one. Uh, no, I don't think they'd like me for that job. No? Uh, no, no, I'm not. I don't think I'm popular with central bankers. But anyway, that's not the question today. The official answer is I, my contract runs until 2014, the end of it, and then we see further. Until 20 when? 14, end of 14. Okay. All right. No, we're 2020, 2024. 2020, okay, I was wondering. I was like, wait, so you're not technically still. I started with the 14 and 2024. That would be 10 years. I see. Yeah, 10 years, 23. Okay, well, so we'll have another one of these conversations then before then. <laughs> thank you very also, much. I really appreciate you giving us time today, Oliver. And thanks to everybody out there who's tuned in to this, our last predictions uh, event of the season. 
Um, and hopefully uh, it will be a great year for all of us and for all of you. So thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner in New York. If you haven't already done so, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob1Cox. Auf Wiedersehen.